Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come to you in the precious name of your Son because there is no other name. There is no other one by whom we can be saved and through whom we can come into your presence with confidence and boldness. And we ask that you would help us for the sake of his name and his glory, that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds, that you would inflame our hearts, Lord, with a renewed passion for him and a hunger and an expectation for what he has provided for us in the age to come. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. I pray, Father, that you would guard me from saying anything amiss or incorrect that would mislead your children. That you would give us discernment, biblical wisdom, as we think on this matter of heaven and its beauty and glory. I ask this again in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. In 1787, a mere... 29 years after the death of Jonathan Edwards, Ezra Stiles, president of Yale University, made the following prediction, quote, In another generation, the works of Jonathan Edwards will pass into as transient notice, perhaps scarce above oblivion. And when posterity occasionally comes across them in the rubbish of libraries... The rare characters who may read and be pleased with them will be looked upon as singular and whimsical. End of quote. Allow me to translate into contemporary English what Ezra Stiles was saying. In only a few years, no one will have any recollection of or desire to read the works of Jonathan Edwards. And when people in 2003 just happen to come across a dusty volume of his in a rundown used bookstore or in the discarded relics of a library, the only ones who will pay him the slightest attention are empty-headed lightweights who simply don't have anything better to do with their time. Oh, Ezra. <laughs> well, it warms my heart to see so many singular and whimsical people gathered in one auditorium. <laughs> I must confess, though, in all honesty, that the presence of so many people at a conference devoted to the personal ministry of Jonathan Edwards is shocking. After all, we are talking about a painfully thin, physically frail man who preached wearing a wig with a wife and 11 children to care for and love and protect. We're talking about a man who sat for upwards of 13 hours a day, six days a week, at a desk with no telephone, no typewriter, no computer, no fax machine, no email, no internet, no copy machine, no printer, no fountain pens, no number two pencils, no easy and abundant supply of paper, no office Macs or Kinkos or Borders and Barnes and Nobles down the street to avail himself of resources that you and I take for granted. We're talking about a man who wrote in a virtually indecipherable script on whatever scraps of paper he could find, everything from napkins to the envelopes and correspondence that had just arrived, to the backside of receipts from the local store, to the margins of books that he no longer found useful. And what he wrote 
contrary to Ezra Stiles, were some of the most profound scientific ideas and philosophical insights and theological observations and exegetical concepts that any human being was ever graced to understand. We're talking about a man whose attention and energy were distracted constantly by oftentimes petty squabbles in his church, having to resolve relational disputes, a man who was compelled to respond to vicious slurs and opposition to his ministry, a man who oftentimes traveled outside of his own home and church to preach and to lecture, not on an American Airlines jet that I flew on from Chicago to Minneapolis, not by train or automobile or bus, but on horseback, trips that oftentimes consumed days and even weeks of his otherwise precious and valuable time. The same man who faithfully prepared elaborate, rich, deep, stylistically stunning and spiritually challenging sermons week in and week out, and yet he only lived 54 years, two more than God has currently graced me with. And here we sit. 2,500 strong, singular and whimsical characters though we be, our lives forever changed for the glory of God, our ideas of God, our worship of God, our understanding of His purpose in history, shaped to a large extent by this incredible individual. I say all this not to idolize him. Do not misunderstand me. I do not say that we, in any sense, worship Jonathan Edwards, something I am sure that he would have resisted with all of his energy. But I say it rather to magnify the remarkable grace of God that could take a frail earthen vessel like Jonathan Edwards to challenge you and me and to teach us and to instruct us. I must confess that in the, the past couple of months as I have read several biographies of Edwards, I reread Ian Murray's biography, I read George Marsden's new biography, I reread John's biographical comments in his book, not only have I been incredibly encouraged, my life has been remarkably rebuked. I ask all of us this morning, all this by the way of preface, by the way, I ask all of us, what are we doing with our time and our resources and the incredible time-saving devices that we have in our day and age? I look at the life and the productivity of this man would have attributed it all to the grace of God. Then I look at myself and I wonder, am I being a good steward with what God has given me? I ask that of you as well today. Now, with that introduction aside, I want us to turn our attention this morning to the subject of joy's eternal increase, or we could call it the ever-expansive enjoyment of God in heaven. To whatever degree we relish and delight in the beauty of God now, it is but a faint foretaste of the eternal feast that we will experience and ingest forever and ever and ever in heaven. As you know, theologians and mystics have often referred to this as the beatific vision. This experience of God's glory that is intuitive and unmediated and unprecedented, this apprehension of the beauty of God that is referred to in the book of Revelation as looking upon the face of the Lamb. And I am persuaded that no one in the history of the church has articulated and illustrated and expressed this better 
than Jonathan Edwards. To make it easier for all of us today to grasp Edwards' theology of heaven, I have kept to a minimum the number of direct quotations from his writings and his sermons and his miscellanies on this subject. Those of you who have read anything of Edwards are already aware that his Puritan prose was a little dense and a little bumpy at times. But rest assured that virtually everything that I'm going to say to you today, although in my own words, is, I hope, an accurate reflection and interpretation of what Edwards himself believed. Now, of course, not everyone thinks that what I'm addressing at this conference is a worthwhile topic. They would suggest that it's people like me who are so heavenly-minded that I'm no earthly good. I want to suggest today that, quite to the contrary, we will never be of much use in this life until we've developed a healthy obsession with the next. Our only hope for satisfaction of soul and joy of heart in this life comes from looking intently at what we can't see. We must take steps to cultivate and intensify in our souls an ache and a longing for the beauty of the age to come. Labor to get a sense of the vanity of this world, said Edwards, and labor to be much acquainted with heaven. The consistent witness of Scripture, I believe, and Edwards did as well, is that we should make heaven and its beauty the object of our contemplative energy. Not for the purpose of fueling theological speculation, but to equip us for the struggles and the difficulties of life here and now. There's something about heaven that makes the anticipation of it profoundly life-changing. And the reason is it hard to discern because the essence of heaven is the vision of God and His glory and the eternal increase of joy in Him. Now, why should we even think about this topic today? Why is it of importance to us? Well, let me suggest, by way of introduction, if I may, several truths that we need to keep in mind. First of all, a contemplative focus on the beauty of heaven frees us from the excessive dependence upon earthly wealth and comfort. Nobody understood this better or expressed it more clearly than did Edwards. If there awaits you and me an eternal inheritance of immeasurable glory, it is senseless to spend so much time and energy and money sacrificing so much of what God has given us now to obtain for so brief a time in a corruptible form what we're going to experience eternally in its consummate perfection. I would remind you of Paul's words in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship, said Paul, is in heaven. Knowing this, says Paul, enables us to escape the grip of earthly things, he says in Philippians 3.19, and to stand firm, Philippians 4.1. Paul isn't denying or diminishing or in any way ignoring the reality of our earthly obligations. In fact, he reminds the Philippians that their bodies were in Philippi. Their names were enrolled as Roman citizens. They had voting rights. They owed their taxes to an earthly king. They were protected by the laws of a this-worldly state. And yet, he says, their fundamental identity, the orientation of their souls, the affection of their hearts, and the focus of their minds was in heaven. It's interesting, the language Paul uses, he appeals to their patriotic pride. Not in Philippi, but in the New Jerusalem. That's their real residence. 
Therefore, he says, be governed by its rules and its principles and its values. And notice how Paul is careful to say that our citizenship is in heaven. Present tense. Not merely will be. We are already citizens of a new state. We are resident aliens on this earth. Peter contends that the ultimate purpose of the new earth, as he says in 1 Peter 1, is our experience of a heavenly hope, one that is imperishable, incorruptible, not subject to decay or rust or mold or dissolution or disintegration. It's undefiled, he tells us, unmixed, untainted by sin or evil. And best of all, he says it's unfading. Not only will it never end, it will never diminish in its capacity to enthrall and fascinate and impart joy. A few verses later in 1 Peter, he says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to that. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you. It's a commanded obsession. Fixate. Rivet your soul on the grace that you'll receive when Christ returns. Tolerate no distractions. Entertain no diversions. Don't let your mind be swayed, Peter says. Devote every ounce of mental, physical, spiritual, and emotional energy to concentrating and contemplating on the grace that is to come. We're told in Hebrews that what energized Abraham's heart and that of the other patriarchs is that they were looking to a city that has foundations. Edwards put it this way. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers... Husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the ocean. A second reason why we need to be doing what we are doing today and throughout our lives, is that a contemplative focus on heaven enables us to respond appropriately to the injustices of this life. Essential to heavenly joy is witnessing the vindication of the righteousness and the judgment of evil. I encourage you to read Revelation chapters 18 and 19, where John describes the celebration around the throne of the Lamb and the joy that is experienced there and the shouts of hallelujah as the saints and the myriads of angels reflect and meditate upon the manifestation of the righteous judgment and wrath of God. I struggle with that simply because I have an earthly, fallen perspective on these matters. But one day, when our minds are redeemed and we see through the eyes and with the mind of the Lord Jesus Himself, we will say, as do those in heaven, true and righteous are your judgments, Lord. Another reason why we should focus on heaven is because it produces the fruit of endurance and perseverance now. You see, the strength to endure present suffering is the fruit of meditating on future satisfaction. That's what Paul meant in Romans 8.18. And he says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The reason we, reason we do not lose heart now, Paul says consistently, is because we contemplate the unseen things 
of the future. We nourish our souls that the truth of, with the truth that whatever we endure on this earth is producing a glory far beyond all comparison. Paul does not ask Christians to treat pain as though it were pleasure. He's not telling us to look at grief as though it were joy, but rather to bring all earthly adversity into comparison with the heavenly glory that has been reserved for us and to be strengthened by it. It's what he meant in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. It's only when juxtaposed with the endless ages of eternal bliss does the suffering in this life become tolerable. Paul, throughout his letters, describes the battle for the mind of Christian men and women. He tells us in Colossians chapter 3 that we are to fix our minds upon the things that are in heaven, where our life is hid with God in Christ. People, there has never been a time in the history of this country, or perhaps in that of the human race, in which this is more essential. May I simply remind you of a startling, staggering statistic. I read recently that the average American teenager, think of this, the average American teenager today watches 18,000 murders and 35,000 commercials before he or she graduates from high school on TV. Someone has calculated that by the time one reaches the age of 65, they will have spent... Ten years watching TV. I'm thinking about what I said at the beginning, that we marvel that a man who sat at a desk without all of these modern devices accomplished what he did. Maybe it was because he didn't have so many of those modern devices that he accomplished what he did. Edwards himself spoke of how contemplations of heaven sustained him in times of physical and emotional trial. When depression set in, and by the way, Jonathan Edwards struggled with depression, oftentimes in his life. Upon his departure from his short pastorate in New York, he wrote this of heaven in his diary from Wednesday, May 1st, 1723. It is a comfort to think of that heavenly state where there is fullness of joy, where reigns heavenly calm and delightful love without alloy, where there are continually the dearest expressions of this love, where is the enjoyment of the persons loved without ever parting, where those persons who appear so lovely in this world will really be inexpressibly more lovely and full of love to us, and how sweetly will the mutual lovers join together to sing the praises of God and the Lamb. That's what sustained him when his heart was sunk by the pressures and the trials of life. Lastly, Edwards also argued that we should contemplate heaven, for it is there, he said, that we see the essence of true religion, just as Ian Murray was describing this morning. It is there, he says, that we learn the nature of genuine religious affections. Edwards often said that the way to learn the true nature of anything is to go to where that thing is found in its highest and purest form and expression. So to know true religion, he said, we must look at it in its heavenly expression. Here's what he said. 
If we can learn anything of the state of heaven from the Scriptures, the love and joy that the saints have there is exceedingly great and vigorous, impressing the heart with the strongest and most lively sensation of inexpressible sweetness, mightily moving, animating, and engaging them, making them like to a flame of fire. And if such love and joy be not affections, then the word affection is of no use in language. Will any say that the saints in heaven, in beholding the face of their Father and the glory of their Redeemer, and contemplating His wonderful works, and particularly His laying down His life for them, have their hearts nothing moved and affected by all which they behold or consider? Now, what is it? that makes heaven so irresistibly appealing. Edwards said it in so many ways, in so many places, throughout his sermons, his treatises, throughout the miscellanies, in his personal narrative, in his diary. But through it all, there is this consistent recurrent theme that heaven is characterized by the increase of joy. Heaven is not simply about the reality of joy or the existence of joy, but by its eternal increase. The blessedness of the beauty of heaven is progressive and incremental and incessantly expansive. The happiness of heaven is not like the placid, steady state of a mountain lake where barely a ripple disturbs the tranquility of its water. No. The happiness of heaven is like the surging, swelling waves of the Mississippi at flood stage. With each passing moment there, we find an increase in the level of its water. And as the rain of revelation and insight and discovery continues to fall throughout the endless ages of eternity, so the water level of love and joy and happiness just rises higher and higher and higher, never to abate or to any degree diminish. Many of you will remember, some of you who have come from Texas especially, the summer of 2002, that the region just north of San Antonio was hit by a devastating flood almost of incalculable proportions. I remember listening to a news report of what was happening, and especially my ears perked up when the news anchor said that the floodwaters had finally receded. The river had crested the night before. People were now able to return to their homes or what was left of them. And although this was certainly good news for those people, you will never hear anything of the sort in heaven. When it comes to the river of God's delights, it never crests. Recede is a word that is absent from the vocabulary of heaven. The waters of divine knowledge in the age to come bring not devastation, but delight. The heavenly river of revelation will never stop. The waters of our enjoyment will suffer no such limitations. Paul made this point so clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, where he said that God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him. Listen, so that in the coming ages, plural, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. That verse tells us that making us alive in Christ and raising us up with Him 
and setting us free from the guilt and bondage of spiritual death was only the penultimate purpose of God. The ultimate motivation in God's heart for saving you and me is so that we might become throughout all eternity trophies on display for all to see the magnificence and the surpassing riches of God's grace in kindness in Christ. I like the fact that Paul referred to the ages plural. Like waves incessantly crashing on the shore, one upon another, so the ages of eternity future will, in endless succession, echo the celebration of sinners saved by grace to the glory of God. There will not be in heaven, people, a one-time, momentary flash of God's goodness, but rather an everlasting, ever-increasing infusion and impartation of divine kindness that intensifies with every passing moment. Heaven is not one grand, momentary flash of excitement followed by an eternity of boredom, as I fear so many Christians have oftentimes thought. Heaven is not going to be like an endless series of earthly reruns. There will be a new episode of divine grace every day. A new revelation every moment of some heretofore unseen aspect of the unfathomable complexity of divine compassion toward people like you and me. A new and fresh disclosure of an implication or consequence of God's mercy every day. A novel and stunning explanation of the meaning of what God has done for us without end. And listen to Paul's words. It isn't merely His grace. It's the wealth or the riches of His grace. God isn't simply gracious. His grace is deep and wide and high and wealthy and plentiful and abounding and infinitely replenishing. And as if grace weren't enough, Paul refers to the immeasurable riches of his grace. And amazingly, one particular aspect in that passage in Ephesians 2 of God's grace is going to be uniquely highlighted and experienced. It's the kindness of God. There is a deeply passionate and emotional dynamic in God's gracious affection for us that entails tenderness and gentleness and long-suffering and joy and heartfelt compassion. That's why Zephaniah 3.17 talks about God singing over His people. Will there ever be an end to this grace? Does it suffer from entropy? Will it ultimately evaporate? Is there a specified quantity of God's grace that will slowly diminish and someday run dry in perhaps one of those distant ages of heaven? No. The point of Paul's language, as Edwards has pointed out, is that the grace of God in Christ is endlessly infinite and endlessly complex and endlessly deep and endlessly new and endlessly fresh and endlessly profound. God is infinite. So too are His attributes. How then could we ever think that there would ever come a terminus or an end or a consummation to the revelation of who He is? And with that unending and ever-increasing display will come an unending and ever-increasing discovery on our part of the depths and greatness of God's grace. We will learn and grasp and comprehend more of the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of God's saving love. We will see ever new and always fresh displays and manifestations of His kindness that we can't even begin to conceive today. We'll constantly be more amazed with God, more in love with God, and thus ever more relishing His presence in our relationship with Him. Our experience of God in heaven will never 
reach its consummation. We will never finally arrive. As if someday in heaven, you know, we'll, we'll arrive on this last mountain peak only to discover that there's emptiness ahead of us. Our experience of God will never become stale. It will deepen and develop and intensify and amplify and unfold and increase and broaden and balloon. Our relishing and rejoicing in God will sharpen and spread and extend and progress and mature and flower and blossom and widen and stretch and swell and snowball and inflate and lengthen and augment and advance and proliferate and accumulate and accelerate forever. Reading Edwards the other day on heaven, I came across a truth that I had never thought of before. Glorification never ends. We talk about, oh, for the day that I will finally and forever be glorified. Glorification is not a singular act of God or a singular experience of the believer. The only thing instantaneous and unchanging about glorification is the eradication of sin and wickedness from our body, soul, and spirit. But the transformation into Christ's image is continuous and expansive and eternally unending. We will continue to grow and deepen and develop. In fact, our knowledge will increase in heaven. Edwards oftentimes appealed to the angels. And by the way, may I just say as a little parenthesis, if you're wondering what area of study or thought in Edwards might you pursue that hasn't been done by anyone before, Edwards wrote massive amounts of material on angels. And there's virtually nothing said about it in the scholarly world. You know why? Angels are an embarrassment to the scholarly world. It's like Ian said this morning, they don't like the supernatural. Edwards wrote extensively on angels. I encourage you to explore his teaching for our edification. But Edwards said, consider the angels. Is it not the case, he said, that although they are perfect and sinless, yet their knowledge and joy increase? Do they not, according to Peter, long to look into the things pertaining to redemption, indicating that although they're perfect, they don't know everything? Is it not the case that they rejoice when a sinner repents? Although they are in the presence of God, their joy therefore can increase. And if that be true of angels, how much more so true of the redeemed? There will never come a time in heaven when we will know all that can be known or see or feel or experience or enjoy all that can be enjoyed. We will never plumb the depth of gratification in God nor reach its end. Our satisfaction and a delight and joy in Him are subject to incessant termination and cessation and expiration and finality are utterly and absolutely inappropriate. As I said, one of the greatest insights that Edwards brings us is this misconception that so many have embraced. He sheds light on this so many times, this idea that we have that heaven is a static unchanging, immutable state, as if to suggest that once we get there at the beginning, we'll get all that we'll ever get at that moment. The idea many have is that we're transformed at its inception as much as we ever will be. Listen, if our ideas and thoughts of God increase in heaven, and how can they not insofar as He is infinite? then so also must the joy and the delight and the fascination which those ideas and thoughts generate. 
We enter heaven with a finite number of ideas about God. Obvious limits on what we can know of Him and see of Him and feel of Him and experience of Him. There's no indication that everything that can be known of God will be known all at once and forever. How can an inf- how can a finite being like me or you ever know all there is to know of an infinite being? And Edwards said, with increased knowledge comes increased love. As understanding grows, so does affection and fascination. And with each new insight comes more joy, which serves only to stoke the fires of celebration around the throne. And all of this accelerates our growth in holiness. And when the soul is filled with ever-increasing depths of knowledge and joy and worship, the more it is conformed to the image of Christ. What a glorious future awaits us. The more we like God, the more like God we become throughout the endless ages. New ideas, new revelation, new insights, new applications, together with new connections between one idea and another, all lead to deeper appreciation for God. All fuel the flames of worship. Well, you think worship here is something... You can compare it, if if possible, with what is happening around the throne described in Revelation 4 and 5. And let me tell you, the volume and the intensity and the joy that you read in those chapters is ever expansive. It grows, it expands, almost to the point where you think, "I'm, I'm going to explode. And just when you think that has happened, if you see anything new or anything fresh, you said, I can't take it anymore. God is going to expand your heart. God is going to increase your faculties. He's going to broaden your emotions and stretch your mind and extend every faculty to take it in. Listen to how Edwards described it. He said, therefore, their knowledge will increase to eternity, and if their knowledge, doubtless their holiness. For as they increase in the knowledge of God and of the works of God, the more they will see of His excellency, and the more they see of His excellency, the more they will love Him, and the more they love Him, the more delight and happiness they will have in Him. Edwards, in a moment, I'll read it fully, but he talks about God contriving and manipulating matter. He's talking about even us in our glorified state so that all the limitations that cause us to sometimes put our hand up and say, I can't think anymore, I can't feel anymore. He's going to so maximize in ways that we can't even begin to imagine your capacity to see and know and enjoy Him. That heaven will be this endless experience of delight in our Heavenly Father. You see, we must never forget that even in heaven, only God is unchanging and immutable. We're ever subject to transformation. We are always subject to improvement. But it's always a change and improvement from one stage of glory to the next. It's one thing to be free of imperfection. It's another thing to experience perfection perfectly. We will be perfect in heaven from the first moment we arrive, in that all sin, all defect, all moral corruption, all selfishness will be gone, and our bodies will be transformed, suitable to that glorious state. But that perfection is finite because we're finite. We don't become infinite when we go to heaven. There is change, but it's always for the better. Heaven is not simply the eradication of earthly sin and imperfection. You see, to say that in heaven I will no longer hate God is not to say that I will love Him perfectly. Our love, said Edwards, can be free from corruption and selfishness without being as perfect and as intense as is possible. 
To say that my love for God is absolutely perfect and can't be improved upon implies that I know everything that can be known of Him, which is not only absurd, it's arrogant. Edwards also placed great emphasis on the importance of what we do now on earth for what we will do and experience then in heaven. Now, this is the part of Edwards' theology of heaven that oftentimes bothers Christians. Edwards believed that there will be a hierarchy of both holiness and happiness in heaven. My guess is that most evangelical believers think that heaven is going to be a condition and a state in which everyone experiences everything equally. Edwards didn't believe that. Whether you want to embrace this or not, I'll leave it to you. I think he's right, and I'm going to try to defend him. But to think that everyone in heaven is equally knowledgeable, equally holy, and equally capable of enjoying God is essentially to argue that the progress we make now on earth means nothing for what we experience in the age to come. We are often exhorted to do things now precisely because it will build up and increase our treasure in heaven. And not everyone now responds to those exhortations the same way or to the same degree. People, Edward said, will enter heaven at differing degrees of holiness, love, and joy. It will all be subject to increase and expansion based upon the depth and measure of our development here on earth. What we do and know now will have eternal consequences. Your capacity for happiness in the ages to come is shaped by the development and refinement and depth of your capacity on earth. What we do now is not discarded once we enter into the pearly gates. What we learn now is not erased in heaven. We don't start over with a blank slate. What we experience and joy and understanding and insight now is not destroyed. It's the foundation on which all our eternal experience and growth is based. If God's desire is to be glorified, then does it not follow that He must do whatever is necessary that His glory may be seen and honored in ever-increasing ways? As I said a moment ago, Edwards talked often about how God is going to enlarge our intellectual capacity to know Him and heighten the sensitivity of our affections to feel Him and to love Him. He's going to transform every faculty of soul to enjoy Him to a degree never before attained or imagined. Our minds and wills and emotions and bodies and spirits will no longer be limited by the corruptions of this flesh or the boundaries of this earth. Again, here are Edward's words. I love this. And without doubt, he said, God can contrive matter so that there shall be other sorts of proportions that may be quite of a different kind and may raise another sort of pleasure in the sense and in a manner to us inconceivable that shall be really more ravishing and exquisite. Our animal spirits, that John was referring to last night, will also be capable of immensely more fine and exquisite proportions in their motions than now they are being so gross. In other words, our animal spirits in heaven will be sanctified. Now, somebody might object at this point. They say, wait just a minute. If we're never able to reach consummate perfection and comprehensive knowledge of God, won't we feel frustrated? Won't there be a sense of disappointment and and anxiety? No. 
Because there will never be a time when we are denied what we desire. Think about that. Happiness consists in part in the satisfaction of desire. In heaven, with each desire, there is fulfillment. We'll only desire what is good and righteous and honoring to God, and it would be hell if such desire were left unsatisfied. Each new desire is but a fitting prelude to the delight that comes with its satisfaction. Frustration, the disappointment, the anxiety that we experience now are the fruit of not attaining what our heart desires. But in heaven, whatever we want, we get. If we want more knowledge, we'll learn. If we want more enjoyment, we get it. With each new desire comes a corresponding satisfaction. And with each new satisfaction, with each new discovery, yet unseen and unexperienced possibilities of enjoying and knowing God will emerge, to which our hearts will then reach again in desire, which in turn will again be fulfilled, which in turn will open up yet new vistas and not yet attained, which when desired will then be fulfilled and satisfied and on and on forever and ever. Often people doubt whether this can really be true, if this is just some pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by dream that evangelicals concocted. And I understand why some feel that way. It's because they have experienced so much misery in this world. They find, by their own confession, that divine providence seems to have prevented their happiness in this life. What reason, then, do we have for believing that they will be happy forever? I mentioned this last night briefly. Edwards says that this question, this objection, fails to realize that God Himself lovingly limits the happiness and pleasure we have now precisely so that we might not become attached to this world or dependent upon it or fearful of leaving it, as well as to stir in our hearts a longing and yearning and holy anticipation for what is yet to come seems to me that growth and happiness in heaven is evident from the fact that the ideas and thoughts and insights into the nature and work of God will forever increase. You know, we, we tend to think that our ability and our capacity to see and know and experience then is circumscribed or limited by what we can see and know and experience now. But with the new heavens and a new earth, Edwards wrote in one place, I love this, he said there are going to be new colors, new hues, new combinations, new depths of radiance together with new faculties of mind, sense, and spirit to apprehend new disclosures of God's infinite splendor. Edwards often talked about what we won't see in heaven. I praise God for this. In Revelation 21.4, we're told that there will be no tears of grief, no death or sorrow or pain. Verse 8 of chapter 21, we are assured by John that no one who is cowardly, lying, or unbelieving will be present. No murderers or anything abominable, immoral, or idolatrous. And again in 21.27, he says, nothing that is unclean will be allowed to enter there. People think of the implications of what is being said. When we get to heaven, there will be, said Edwards... Nothing which shall offend the most delicate eye. In other words, nothing that is abrasive, irritating, agitating, or hurtful. Nothing harmful, hateful, upsetting, or unkind. 
Nothing sad, bad, or mad, harsh, impatient, ungrateful, or unworthy. Nothing weak, or sick, or broken, or foolish. Nothing deformed, degenerate, depraved, or disgusting. Nothing polluted, pathetic, poor, or putrid. Nothing dark, dismal, dismaying, or degrading. Nothing blameworthy, blemished, blasphemous, or blighted. Nothing faulty, faithless, frail, or fading. Nothing grotesque or grievous, hideous or insidious. Nothing illicit or illegal, lascivious or lustful. Nothing marred or mutilated, misaligned or misinformed. Nothing nasty or naughty, offensive or odious. Nothing rancid or rude, soiled or spoiled, tawdry or tainted, tasteless or tempting. Nothing vile or vicious, wasteful or wanton. None of it. And all of this for hell-deserving sinners like you and me. The best, most beautiful, and most perfect way that we have of expressing a sweet concord of mind to each other, said Edwards, is by music. And thus in heaven, he continued, and here I'm quoting, It is probable that the glorified saints, after they have again received their bodies, will have ways of expressing the concord of their minds by some other emanations than sounds. I don't know what those are. I'm not sure that he knows what they are, but but by some other emanations than sounds of which we cannot conceive that will be vastly more proportionate, harmonious, and delightful than the nature of sounds is capable of. And the music they will make will be in a medium capable of modulations in an infinitely more nice, exact, and fine proportion than our gross air, and with organs as much more adapted to such proportions. That's in Miscellany 188. In heaven, he said, there shall be no string out of tune to cause any jar in the harmony of that world, no unpleasant note to cause any discord. And what did he think that we will do there? Well, for one thing, we'll no longer enjoy sin. Envy, covetousness, and spite, all those things that fill our hearts when we see others exceeding us in prosperity and surpassing us in success, elevated beyond us in worldly affairs, will be forever and ever absent from heaven. Listen to this. This is one of Edward's most stunning insights. He said that hardly anything... Hardly anything will bring you more joy in heaven than to see other saints with greater rewards than you, experiencing greater glory than you, given greater authority than you. I know that's hard to swallow. But in heaven there will be no jealousy, no envy or pride to fuel unhealthy competitiveness. There will be no greed to energize our race to get more than everybody else. You will then delight only in delighting in the delight of others. Their achievement will be your greatest joy. Their success will be your highest happiness. You see, envy comes from lack, but in heaven there's no lack. And so whatever you need, you get. Whatever desires may arise, they'll be satisfied. The fact, and by the way, I encourage you to read In Heaven, A World of Love, Edwards' exquisite explanation and defense of this concept. The fact that some are more holy and more happy than others in heaven will not diminish the latter's joy. There will be perfect humility and perfect resignation to God's will in heaven, and therefore no resentment or bitterness. Furthermore, those higher in holiness 
will, will, precisely because they are more holy, be more humble. Just as Ian said this morning, for Edward, chief of all sin is pride. The chief of all holiness is humility. So the very vice that might incline them to look condescendingly on those lower than themselves is nowhere present. It's precisely because they're more holy that they are so very humble and thus incapable of arrogance and elitism. They won't strut or boast or use their higher degrees of glory to humiliate or harm those lower. Those who know more of God will, precisely because of that knowledge, think more lowly and humbly of themselves. How could you not? They'll be more aware of the grace that accounts for their holiness than those who know and experience less of God. And hence they will be more ready to serve and to yield and to go lower and to defer. Edwards argued extensively that some people in heaven will be happier than others. But listen... This is no reason for sadness or anger. In fact, swallow this. It will serve only to make you happier to see that others are happier than you. Your happiness will increase when you see that the happiness of others has exceeded your own. Why? Because love dominates in heaven. And love is rejoicing in the increase of the happiness of others. To love someone is to desire their greatest joy. So as their joy increases, so does yours in them. If their joy did not increase, neither would yours. You see, we struggle on earth to do this because our thoughts and desires and motives are corrupted by self-seeking, sinful, pride, competitive envy and jealousy and resentment. We often hesitate to love others on earth precisely for this reason. We're, we're afraid they're not going to love us back. Or maybe that their professions of love will be insincere and feigned, but not in heaven. Listen to Edwards. Heavenly lovers will have no doubt of the love of each other. They shall have no fear that their professions and testimonies of love are hypocritical. They shall be perfectly satisfied of the sincerity and strength of each other's love as much as if there were a window into all their hearts that they could see each other. There shall be no such thing as flattery or dissimulation in heaven, but their perfect sincerity shall reign through all. Everyone will be perfectly sincere, having really all that love which they profess, all their expressions of love shall come from the bottom of their hearts. So oftentimes, as we, we know, many of you feeling it right now, it's hard to be happy and joyful when you hurt. But in heaven, with new and glorified bodies, there'll be no fatigue, no pain, no discomfort, no chronic aches or itches, only pure physical pleasure with no bodily obstacles to diminish our ability to see and feel and hear and touch and taste and smell the glories of paradise. So oftentimes now on earth, Edwards tells us physical pleasure competes with spiritual happiness. But in heaven, they're one. They're unified. The physical and emotional and intellectual pleasures of heaven will infinitely exceed the most ecstatic of physical and sensual pleasures on earth. There'll be no bodily lust to pull you down, no fatigue to cloud your mind, no wicked impulses against which you're going to have to fight. 
No dullness of heart to hold you back. No treason. No lethargy of soul to slow you down. No weakness of will to keep you in bondage. No lack of energy to love someone else or an absence of passion to pursue what is holy. Insofar as our bodies will be glorified in heaven and thus delivered of weakness and frailty and obscurity, our senses will be heightened and magnified. Our capacity to smell and touch and taste will be magnified beyond our wildest dreams. Edwards, I love this phrase, every perceptive faculty shall be an inlet of delight. Every perceptive faculty shall be an inlet of delight. He continues, and I'm going to read this, and i got to be real careful not to give you my interpretation. I'm just going to let you think about the implications of what Edwards is saying. This came from a Puritan. In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such a motion that shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure on earth. I could say a lot about that. But I won't. Finally, you need never live in fear that any heavenly joy will ever be lost or taken away. We struggle to enjoy life now from the fear that it's going to end. The other shoe's going to drop. Somebody's going to pull the rug out. A disaster will strike. We hold back. We hedge our bets. We restrain our souls because economic recession might start. Physical health might deteriorate. Someone near and dear to us may die. Something unforeseen may surprise us and take it all away, but not in heaven. Never. The beauty and joy and glory and delight and satisfaction and purity will never, ever end, but only increase and grow and expand and multiply. Did Edwards go too far? Did he go too far in his portrayal of heaven? Have I gone too far? God forbid. If anything, Edwards' portrayal of the beauty of heaven was but a whimper of the incredible reality that awaits us. Edwards said, and I agree with him, it is virtually impossible to exaggerate the joys of heaven. He said, quote, there is scarce anything that can be conceived or expressed about the degree of the happiness of the saints in heaven. In the first extant sermon of his, on Isaiah chapter 3, verse 10, he put it this way. To pretend to describe the excellence, the greatness or duration of the happiness of heaven by the most artful composition of words would be to darken and cloud it. To talk of raptures and ecstasies, joy and singing is to set forth very low shadows of the reality. And all we can by our best rhetoric is really and truly vastly below what is but the bare and naked truth. And if St. Paul, who had seen them, referring to 2 Corinthians 12, thought it vain to endeavor to utter it, 
much less shall we pretend to do it. And the Scriptures have gone as high in the description of it as we are able to keep pace with it in our imagination and conception. So I stand before you today as one hell-deserving sinner to a multitude of other hell-deserving sinners. And I say that what you have heard from me as I have tried to interpret Edwards is but a faint, barely audible whisper to the ear-shattering, bone-rattling shout of the glory and beauty of heaven that awaits us by virtue of the sovereign grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive us, Lord. Forgive me. Forgive Jonathan Edwards for having so pathetically portrayed the glory and the beauty of eternity with you. Lord, our words are so weak. Our illustrations so far short. Father, I pray that above all, you would impress upon our hearts even now all this, all this for those who have merited and warranted and earned and deserved eternal conscious torment. Thank you, Father, that in our stead, in our place, our precious Savior consumed in Himself, body, soul, and spirit, all of that wrath and all of that torment that we might today, if only but in a faint whisper, speak of the glories that You have reserved for us, that we forever and ever in the ages to come might be the trophies of Your kindness in Christ to Your glory. We thank You and we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.